This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Thank you so much for having us. Um, myself and Mackenzie are here to talk about home and community-based services and um, give an update on what we will, uh, kind of what's happening in California. But we also recognize that although this has been a topic of conversation for a number of years, that this may be new to some of the attendees. So Mackenzie's going to start out with just a very brief overview of what are we even talking about when we talk about home and community-based services and the changes associated with the final rule. And just to note that we do have no disclosures. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. I'm so happy to be here with everybody and talk about what HCBS, or Home and Community-Based Service Waiver Program, is. And so, as a general gist, the HCBS Program Waiver recognizes that individuals are at a risk of being placed in medical facilities, even though they can be supported in their home and their community, sometimes with their family, sometimes in residential settings, sometimes in supported living, and sometimes on their own. And so this gives the opportunity for that to happen and make sure it happens with quality. This preserves their independence, ties them with family and friends, and it's at a cost no higher than institutional care. Um, when HCBS Concept began with someone named Katie Beckett in 1981, she was five months old when Katie had a brain infection and got treated at a hospital and pretty much recovered, except that she still needed to use a ventilator to breathe for much of the day. And Medicaid would pay for it, except Katie still had to be in the hospital. And so she was pretty much stuck at St. Luke's until uh, she was about three years old and President Reagan heard about her. Uh, it was about one sixth of the cost to care for Katie at home. And so they basically did that. President Reagan sent her home expecting that there might be like 100, 200 individuals like Katie that would be able to receive services at home, cost less and have a better quality move till now when we have a little bit more individuals, but basically this was the start of the HCBS service waiver, looking at service delivery a little bit differently. How can we get the quality care for individuals in the place that they feel the most comfortable? You can move to the next slide. Um, okay, great. So a huge part of the HCBS waiver is what's called the federal requirements, the final rule. So there's basically 10 rules that are the holy grail of HCBS. These 10 rules focus on quality, they focus on individual specific care, person-centeredness, a lot of different aspects. I'm going to go through some of the highlights of uh, the 10 final rules for providers. I want to be clear that this one is related to the setting, and so this goes for day programs, this goes for employment services, this goes for residential settings, and then the next five is specifically for residential settings. So if you have an individual that you support going to a day program, employment, or residential, all of these five are going to apply to them. So let's start with number one. Basically that their setting is integrated with the community, that it supports full access for anyone receiving Medicaid HCBS waiver. Um, that means anything that someone that doesn't have a disability is able to access in the community, someone with a disability should be able to as well. Number two, 
is selected by the individual from among setting options, including non-disability specific settings. So you might hear of some community college classes that are specifically for individuals with disabilities, where this is great and there's opportunities for um, more hands-on learning, some more assistance. We also need to be able to give individuals with disabilities access to non-disability specific services. Number three, it ensures an individual's rights of privacy, privacy, dignity, and respect. Sounds basic, right? And some of these rules are, a lot of our providers are already having these systems in place, but it helps to have it in writing so that someone can refer back and can show when it's not happening and that we they can be supported in that way. Um, also, the freedom from coercion and restraint. And this can be lots of different restraint. I want to, a lot of the people on this call might think of restraint as um, maybe having someone on to a bed tied down or, um, but it can also be chemical restraint as well. And so that's something important to think about as well. Number four, um, having life choices and the independence in all, all things, but not limited to daily activities, physical environment with whom they interact. Um, daily activities should be exciting to an individual. Um, some in the past, some of our residential settings have done bingo on every Friday. I am someone that loves bingo, but my, my things that I like change. I might get so tired of bingo on Fridays. And so having those conversations with individuals that support and what their likes and dislikes are and how they change and collecting that data. And then facilitate individual choice regarding services and supports. Uh, I think this goes to our last conversation really well too about like the cultural importance. And so if I'm someone that speaks another language and wants someone that supports me or my staff to also speak that language, I have the right to request that. Um, I have the right to reach out to those people. Um, and I, I think that that makes the individual that's receiving support a ton more comfortable and it also helps that relationship too and um, the quality of that care. You can go to the next slide. So like I mentioned, these final rules are specifically for um, residential settings. And so those were all employment, day services, some of the other service codes that HCBS applies to. This is for a residential setting. So someone supported by the regional center that lives in a home that's vendorized by the regional center. So number six of the federal requirement or final rule is that they have a legally enforceable agreement, um, basically having the rights of what a renter has, um, that they can't be evicted without cause, that they have an eviction timeline, uh, things like that, that they're giving notice. Like I mentioned, a lot of these things are already happening, but making sure that it's in writing and that all of our providers are aware of this. Number seven, each individual has privacy in their sleeping or living unit. And then the, those doors are lockable. Um, this has caused quite the conversation about what are those gray areas? What are those health and safety requirements? What are those person-to-person um, -person aspects? Like if I want a roommate, if I'm someone that really enjoys being around people and want to have that, can I still do it? The answer is yes. Um, the purpose of HCBS is to really connect the individual with their wants and needs. And so if I have been living with the same person for 30 years in a residential home, and all of a sudden I hear of HCBS, 
I don't have to leave. I don't have to find my own room. It's making sure that option's available. And then same with lockable doors. Um, I am someone that deserves privacy. I'm someone that deserves to be able to make phone calls in my own area, um, keep myself safe in a way with locking the door if that makes me feel safe and have that opportunity. And same with freedom to furnish or decorate my room. Um, It's my space. And so how do I make it look like my space? Um, Number eight, individuals have access to food at any time. You might hear of some of the older residential homes or some of the background of even you might have set meal times. Say you wake up, you have an eight o'clock breakfast, you have a 12 o'clock lunch, uh, you have a six o'clock dinner. That's your timeline. Um, I am someone that wakes up at different times. I like to sleep in on the weekends, um, things like that. And so if I miss that eight o'clock breakfast, um, I still have time to be able to eat later and have snacks at any time, have food that I can just go grab and make sure that that's accessible and they're not set times. Individuals are able to have visitors of their choosing at any time. Um, This can be another one of those things that starts conversation. Um, Visitors at any time. This can be somebody at 2 a.m. coming to a residential home that's a visitor, but it can also lead to conversations within that group home of what it looks like for roommates and what roommate etiquette is. I've been someone that's previously lived with roommates. If I brought somebody random over at 2 a.m., my roommates would probably be mad. And so having that conversation as a group and what those group agreements are um, can still happen, but you do have the opportunity to have visitors at any time. And then finally, number 10, the setting is physically accessible to individuals. Um, if I'm somewhere and that need someone that needs a ramp to get into my home, I also need a ramp to get out. If there's a backyard, I need a ramp to get down to the backyard. Uh, if showering on my own is an option, I need to be able to get into the shower. Um, things like that to make sure it's physically accessible. Next slide. So why is this important? This is a shift in thought. For a long time, I feel like with the this community, we've been looking at making sure that everyone is served, which is super important, right? We want to make sure that everyone has a place to stay. We want to make sure that they have the services, but we also want to make sure that those services are done well, right? We want to make sure that they're culturally responsive, that the spiritual and cultural activity support are available. Someone in a home might be a Muslim. Someone in the home might be Catholic and making sure that they both have the opportunities to celebrate their holidays, to go to their religious services and things like that. And cross communication between those. Um, It gives an opportunity for education. It gives an opportunity for a family like style um, and to have those conversations too. It's cost effective. It's usually less than half the cost of institutional care. So that's important as well. Um, Familiarity. Person enjoys the comfort of their own home or small residential community and facility in the community. A lot of these homes have around five, six individuals. You get to know the people. You get to know the staff. You get to know the community. Um, Now that we are um, having the opportunity to go outside more safely, having the opportunity to be in the community. What does the YMCA look like? Is there parks in the area? Who likes hiking? Things like that. Uh, So having that familiarity with what your community is and being able to explore it. And then some waivers also permit family members to be paid caregivers. And so for those that think it's important um, to be around their family and have that opportunity, they can be paid to do so. 
So I will pass it over to Amanda now to talk about where California is, where the country is, and what this implementation timeline looks like of HCBS. Thank you, Mackenzie. So, you know, one of the things I really want to reinforce that Mackenzie was saying and that um, was really demonstrated throughout the final rules is that the the final rules, while they're looked at rules and a change in regulation um, and are really tied to how services are funded, really align with what self-advocates and allies of the disability community have been advocating for for years, which is moving from a caretaker model to how do we really support people to be members of their own communities in the way that they want to be members of those communities? How do we really um, make sure that as we are providing support that we are honoring the voice of the of the person that we're supporting? And um, I mean, this is something that really has been advocated for for years. So um, when we look at it, it's it's a shift in how we provide support. And we often talk about not wanting to have, you know, things just turn into a form and we check the box that, that of support is provided in a certain way. But we do need to have ways of tracking how that support is, is changing. So as we're kind of doing this cultural change to how support's provided, we also need to be able to assess and, and really um, look at, are we seeing the changes that these new regulations are intended to do? So I wanted to give you just kind of a, a very quick nationwide picture first of where states that receive Medicaid um, waiver funding are with their statewide transition um, statewide transition plans. So all states that receive Medicaid uh, service funding are required to have a statewide transition plan that goes through an approval process with the Center for Medicaid Services. Um, this plan demonstrates activities that will move into compliance with the final rules. This chart gives you an idea of where states have, were as of the beginning of March um, with their plan approval. So the blue indicates that 23 states, including California, have initial approval. There are 22 states that, are, that have final approval. So right now, there's um, almost an equal split between initial approval and final approval. And then there's still six states remaining that need to submit some clarifications or modifications before they receive their initial approval. So as I said, California is in the initial approval state. What does that really mean? When we look at the California statewide transition plan, uh, it's also important to know that it doesn't affect just the services provided with funding through the Department of Developmental Services. Um, we are specifically speaking today to services with people with developmental disabilities, but this plan is um, uh, put together and overseen by the California Department of Healthcare Services, and it impacts the California Department of Aging, California Department of Public Health, as well as the Department of Developmental uh, Services. So when they assembled this plan, there were opportunities for stakeholder and public feedback along different aspects um, or different kind of timeline points of, of the plan. California received initial approval in February of 2018 and then received initial, had an additional approval addendum that was approved in August of 2018. So you can see that these activities have been going on for um, quite a while now, five plus years, as we look at what the transition to compliance with federal rule is. 
So CMS gave a few things that need to be completed before California would receive fi uh, final approval for their statewide transition plan. These activities include a comprehensive summary of um, completed site-specific assessments, which we're going to talk a little bit more about what that has looked, at, looked like. And that needs to include validation of results and aggregated outcomes. There needs to be uh, remediation strategies that are outlined with corresponding timelines for any issues that were identified through site assessment. So in those site assessments, we see what needs to change and what are those remediation plans to make those changes. A detailed plan for identifying settings with presumed institutional characteristics and a plan for evaluating these settings. So one of the um, big pieces of the final rule is that um, this is not just replicating institutional settings. It's not funding institutional settings. So um, looking at how do we really look closely if there is something that looks like it could be an institutional setting and how do we evaluate that um, and identify that. A process for communicating with beneficiaries who are receiving services and settings that either cannot or will not come into compliance with HCBS settings role. California's um, budget for funding developmental disability services is about 60% from state funds, 40% from um, Medicaid waiver federal funding reimbursement. So what is the plan for those services that do not comply with HCBS settings? And how do we notify those who are receiving those services? And that's something that um, from kind of what we hear down at the regional center level is still in conversation, I believe, at a state level. And then a description of ongoing monitoring and quality assurance processes that will ensure compliance with HCBS settings role. And this is really important because it's not just good enough to get into compliance, but it's how do we maintain that compliance? How do we maintain that quality of service delivery so we don't fall into what um, may be kind of the quote unquote old ways of doing something? So we talked a lot about assessments in what's required from the statewide plan. And I'm going to kind of narrow down to just a couple of assessment processes that have been conducted with service providers who provide services to people with developmental disabilities. So services that are funded through DDS. Um, first, there was a self-assessment process. And then second, there was a site assessment process that I'll speak to. DDS has been working with a consulting group, public consulting group, to develop the assessment process and, and roll those out. And the services that are assessed are services that are impacted by the final role. So those would be services like licensed care homes um, that are licensed by community care licensing, day programs, employment services. They do not include services such as supported living services, which are presumed to already be um, the services presumed to be provided in the same, you know, alignment with what the federal role is already looking for. So first we have the self-assessment process that was conducted online from January through August in 2020. And this was something that was required of service providers. Regional centers and DDS worked to get the word out to service providers. There were a number of trainings that were made available to service providers um, and, and Q&A sessions so that service providers could get more information and get their questions answered. And basically, this survey asked questions that addressed all of the federal rules. 
Um, and the answers were either a yes, no, or a met, somewhat met, or not met, depending on the question. And then also ask the service provider to indicate how a description of the documentation that would back up their answer. So, for example, if um, a service provider talks about that they have locks on the door of the of the residential home, that's a yes or no. And the documentation is either there is a lock on the door or there's not a lock on the door. But if they're talking about their process for how they inform somebody of their rights and help them understand their rights and incorporate their choice into everyday um, life and make sure that person's voice is honored, then that's something where they may need to do a deeper description of what are some of the, the ways that you do that? What are um, the strategies that you use? What do you, how do you do staff, staff training on that, et cetera? And the survey did request that when the providers do the survey completion, that they include stakeholder feedback. It's one thing to say, if I'm a service provider, that I feel like I'm giving the individuals a choice in their life and um, helping them be engaged and part of the community in the way that they want to be engaged. But does that person that I'm supporting feel that way? And that's important to know. Conducting these assessments in 2020 provides um, provided a lot of time for service provision change. Right now, we are really within this time frame of getting into compliance with the federal rule. And it really does allow for time for service providers to look critically at their service delivery and make changes that might be needed to be in compliance. So the, this really has given us a number of years to work on um, service provider compliance. And then one of the other, I think, key things is at the very end, it asks, are you going to be making changes about um, compliance related needs. And that's not the exact way it was worded, but I mean, that's helpful to know. It helps us as regional centers narrow down on if a provider were to say no, that they didn't feel they needed to make changes, but we see things where it's like there's room for improvement within some of their areas, then that also helps us be able to do some targeted outreach and support. The data of the results of the self-assessment process is posted on the regional center websites and DDS's website. And then as more service providers complete the survey, um, perhaps they were a newer service provider, did not get it done in the 2020 timeline, that does get updated every six months. The second type of assessment was uh, site assessments, which were conducted in the spring of 2021. These were conducted randomly, so it was not with all service providers. And this was changed to a virtual site assessment in response to COVID-19 pandemic safety precautions. These virtual site assessments included an interview with the service provider, interviews with individuals receiving services who were open to talking with the surveyor, as well as a tour of that location. Um, as I said, it was a random sampling of providers selected, and it was across residential day and employment services. So they, the pub public consulting group representatives that conducted these site assessments um, are in the process of completing outcome reports. And we do um, recognize that there's probably going to be areas that there is room for improvement. And so once we get those outcome reports, we can work with service providers on remediation plans to look at what are some areas where we can improve quality within services and really um, make sure those services are, are developing in alignment with the final rule.
think one of the really important things that has been available and really supports this change is opportunities for funding HCBS compliance changes. Um, there's a lot that can be done without additional funding, but there's, you know, depending on the service that's provided and how long that service has really been running, there's are, there are some things that really benefit from additional funding. So there's $15 million statewide annually that has been put into similar grant funding for HCBS compliance through DDS. Now that is depending on each budget year, um, but thankfully we've been able to have access to this. And I believe the first year that we had access to this was 2017. So just a quick overview of the funding process. Um, typically within that given year, DDS will announce the funding and the application process. And regional centers really help spread the word about this funding. Now, this is going to look different in each regional center area, but um, what we hear from a lot of regional centers and what Golden Gate Regional Center does is we not only spread the word about the funding, but we also provide some technical support, some opportunities for brainstorming, um, meeting one-on-one -on -one with service providers to look at what are some ways that you might be able to look creatively at your services and that um, your application for funding um, could really help with that service change. Um, providing feedback to the service providers um, to the extent that they, that they want it. So it really is a collaborative process to help service providers really truly look at their services and how they would be in compliance. The provider then submits a proposal, which includes the funding use, how are they going to use the funding, why is that funding needed, and what's the anticipated outcomes. The regional centers review that and we comment for DDS, but ultimately DDS receives all of the proposals from the regional center and reviews and scores them and makes the final selection of funding awardees. So DDS does that final selection process, but then the regional centers work directly with the awardees and um, look at monitoring their progress. If they're running into barriers, you know, we do brainstorming for, you know, problem solving. So we really kind of work, you know, as boots on the ground with that service provider who's receiving that funding. Uh, examples of, of projects that have been funded in the past would include things like um, train the trainer programs for person-centered training to be able to train staff in person-centered training, but also to have a staff person who is able to train other staff so that is sustainable. Um, some agencies have received funding for new vehicles or smaller vehicles, so they're not dependent on one large van that you know, requires um, you know, a large group to go out, but you know, really helps with people going out to more individual activities that they want to do in the community. And then there's also been funding around development of community-based day services and employment services, which have helped um, be able to successfully close more of a, a sheltered workshop model that uh, was a very segregated setting and helps encourage uh, competitive integrated employment opportunities within the community. And I will turn it over to Mackenzie to talk about the additional support that is provided. Yeah, so HCBS is a lot. Uh, and we've just scratched the surface. And so how are we sharing this information and educating service providers, individuals served, regional center staff? How's that happening? And so GGRC hosts monthly training sessions for providers, um, individuals, and uh, regional center staff monthly. And so what we talk about is really dependent on what the 
audience is wanting. And so some of the past things have been deeper dives into the federal requirements that we talked about. Um, some of those ones that can cause some more questions or gray areas. We're talking about implementation. What does it look like if we're doing changes in our home, um, whether in the physical manner or within our program, or what does that look like? And then person-centered practices as well. How are we making choice um, a large aspect of our program? We're doing ongoing monitoring that happens uh, by the regional center during annual visits. And so individuals are interviewed and asked about their choices, privacy, and other HCBS topics on an annual basis. And we're tracking that data to make sure that it's trending upward and changing and the individual feels that their voice is heard. And then the Department of Developmental Services also provides training for the regional center and service providers alike on state updates, implementation, what we're looking at, where we're going, um, how it's doing, and all aspects of HCBS. And so um, that's been really helpful. Like I said, we're scratching the surface of what HCBS is. Um, there's so much more to come on implementation and how it looks for people served. And so please take a look at some of these resources if this is interesting to you. Um, thank you so much for supporting individuals and the regional center supports as well and making sure that they have the quality in life that they deserve. So thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.